Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Other Hand. It's my great pleasure to welcome once again uh, my guest, Duncan Weldon. This is the third time Duncan has made a guest appearance on the podcast. The first time we discussed his marvellous recent book, 200 Years of Muddling Through, a, a fabulous read on economic history of Great Britain. Thoroughly recommend that to everyone. Growing out of that, he's agreed to stand in for Jim on the during the last couple of weeks so many thanks to Duncan um, a big uh, recommendation for his book that's that's the quid pro quo that I, all I can offer him for coming on the pod but good morning Duncan how are you very good thank you for having me back again clearly didn't go too badly last week no the numbers and feedback has been great so um, it's, it's, it's been fantastic I hope you've got similar feedback the agenda for today as always is pretty open we, there's lots going on and the thing that I would like to start with is talking about global inflation and issues around that and if and if we have time and only have if we have time to have a few words with you given your background as um, an economist at the Bank of England a journalist with um, august institutions like Newsnight and, and other publications like The Economist, um, your insight into the UK budget, I think our listeners would be really interested in. But can we start with inflation? Because something that you wrote recently on your own Substack site, um, because like me, you have a Substack website, like a lot of, like all the best journalists these days, we have our own Substack site. And again, I can thoroughly recommend 
Duncan's, and please sign up to it if you can. You, you quoted Charles Goodhart, another member of the great and the good of the British economic establishment over many decades, as saying quite recently that the economics profession has no general theory of inflation. Now, the, in and of itself, I find that quote quite remarkable, actually. After all these, dare I say, centuries of theoretical work, empirical work, on the bookshelves behind me, they groan with books that are entirely about inflation. They, most of them have chapters on inflation. I have Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz's thing that is causing my shelf to bend, uh, A Monetary History of the United States, which is all about a particular theory of inflation backed up by thousands of pages of evidence. And for, for an economist to say today or recently that we have no general theory of inflation, I think speaks to or asks the question, is, was all of that effort in vain? Um, why do we still not have a general theory of inflation? And it's, of course, particularly relevant today because there is a global inflation problem. And I want to talk about that as well. So I want to talk about the theory and the state of the economics profession generally, and then about this specific problem that we all face as individuals and as econ and economies, countries. It was a big part of yesterday's budget, for example, whether or not inflation would hit 4 or 5% over the next while in the UK. And many countries are having that debate. The big debate is whether or not it's transitory or not, to use that word. But can we start with that Goodhart quote, economists don't have a general theory of inflation, and why you began your piece with that quote. Yeah, of course. So this was Charles Goodhart, who's, you know, former chief economist of the Bank of England, professor at the London School of Economics, you know, very esteemed senior member of the profession and the former policymaker, speaking at Sintra in Portugal, which is the European Central Bank's annual sort of get together of the great and the good in monetary economics. And, you know, he sort of shocked the conference, as it were, by saying we have no general theory of inflation. And he was very interesting. He he sort of laid out how we got here as a, as a, a at the state of macroeconomics that, you know, if you go back two or three decades, if you go back three or four decades, there were sort of two competing theories of inflation. You had this Keynesian theory sort of based around uh, what was called a Phillips curve relationship, which postulated that you know, inflation was determined by essentially the level of unemployment, that if unemployment went very low, firms would be competing for uh, workers, wages would get pushed up, that would feed through into general prices. And this sort of Keynesian theory was based on state of demand in the economy, how low unemployment was. Empirically, that relationship has broken down over the last few decades. Then along comes the book that makes your um, bookshelf grown, um, Schwartz and Friedman's um, monetary history of the United States. And we had this monetary theory of inflation, that inflation is everywhere, you know, a phenomenon of too much money chasing too much goods. And if you control the supply of money, you'll keep inflation low and stable. But then that theory has empirically broken down as well. So for the last sort of 20, 30 years, sort of the working theory, certainly in central bank land, is something that Charles Goodhart called a bootstrap theory. This idea that what determines inflation is expectations of inflation. And if firms, workers, financial markets 
expect inflation to be stable, then inflation will be stable because they will set prices and wages and contracts and loans on the basis of stable or in the jargon anchored expectations. And that's sort of been the working theory in central bank land, that what you've got to do is keep medium term inflation expectations stable and the rest will look after itself. But Charles Goodhart thinks the theoretical basis for this has always been weak. The empirical basis has never been as strong as people think it is. And he's not the first person saying this. Um, The very end of September, Jeremy Rudd, who's a senior economist at the US Federal Reserve, in fact, in charge of inflation forecasting at the Federal Reserve, wrote really quite a strongly worded paper saying, look, the theoretical basis of our theory of inflation doesn't really work. And I'm not sure the empirical evidence is there either, which is what takes you back to Charles Goodhart sort of saying the biggest debate in global macroeconomics and macroeconomic policy at the moment, certainly the advanced economies is, is this period of high inflation going to be transitory or is it a shift to structurally higher inflation? And what you've got senior members of the profession saying is we don't really have a way to go about answering that question, which is not ideal. Do you think it's true? One of the things that strikes me about this is that it's, it's not, in terms of economics, it's not just about inflation. One of my favourite, also a Substack writer these days, a blogger of, of many years past, is a guy called Noah Smith, who seems to write an annual article about the state of economics. And what, one phrase that struck me in, in a recent piece by him and speaks to uh, something you were saying about causal relationships is that macroeconomics, the reason why macro, macro in many ways is so difficult, if not impossible, is because we never really, at the end of the day, can sort out what causes what. We can postulate, we can hypothesize, we can have a look at, and we can test, but we, in many ways, simply don't have the necessary data to sort out the causality question, which is why these macro questions about inflation and lots of other things, because we might ask the same, you know, do we have uh, a general theory that is accepted by everyone of unemployment? I suspect we probably don't. All the macro phenomena that we look at, the reason why we can't forecast the economy is that our tools, the the toolkits that we have available to us, just isn't up to scratch. And that's not an individual moral failure on the part of economists. It's just that we're perhaps physics at the time of Copernicus, or, or, or perhaps we will always be physics at the time of Copernicus, because unlike the physicists, we will never have access to proper data. Um, we seem to have decent tools, and, and this is one of the criticisms, of course, that many popular critiques of economists make, is that our tools are fancy. If you look at the, um, the work of the, of the recent Nobel Prize winners in economics, a lot of quite ordinary lay people would actually understand what it is that they're trying to do, although perhaps the tools that they're using might be beyond those that don't have a reasonably advanced education in mathematics. But if you were to look at something like, dare I say, a dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model, you'd stand no chance of being an intelligent layperson about understanding because the tools and techniques that we do have to actually analyze the data that we, such as it is, are pretty good. Is it the data or is it the tools or is there something more fundamentally wrong, do you think, Duncan? Um, I think it's a bit of both, I think, to be honest. I think, firstly, on the data, I mean, you know, if anything, we have too much data. And, you know, what we, one of the really big things of 2020 was, you know, it must have been the most analyzed and tracked recession of all time. 
So, you know, we used to, you know, once upon a time, you used to have to wait for national statistics officers to give you, you know, unemployment figures and inflation figures and growth figures. And for the last 18 months, we've had, you know, real-time tracking of mobility from Apple and Google data. We've had live restaurant bookings from Opal, um, Open Table. people monitoring traffic cams to work out, you know, traffic levels. Um, you know, we, we've had so much real-time tracking, but the problem is you've got all of this data. And I think, you know, what you were saying is right, that there's so much going on in a modern macroeconomy that isolating cause and effect is very, very difficult. So, you know, we have these policy tools and we can debate what we think they do, but it's always, it's going to be very hard to ever precisely say, you know, doing X caused Y. And then you're right, you move on to the, you know, the attempts to model this and forecast this. And, you know, forecasting is very hard. Be absolutely clear, forecasting is very hard, particularly economic shocks happen quite regularly, whether that's surging gas prices at the moment or, what, or supply chain crunches, which blow you off course. And I think one problem with lots of the kind of modeling that central banks prefer to work with, you know, these um, dynamic general stochastic equilibrium models, um, all of this sort of um, stuff, or even some of the mental models that fiscal policymakers are working with. In the medium term, the assumption is pretty much always the economy refers returns to what they call trend growth. Problem is trend growth is really, really hard to estimate. You know, you can have you can have reasonably you can have a reasonably accurate picture on a sort of four or five year view of how many workers are going to be available, what the population is going to grow like. Now obviously migration patterns can change that, but you, you can be reasonably certain. But apart from that, you know, forecasting medium term productivity, forecasting how much firms are going to invest, um, it's just very, very hard. And if you've got a model which assumes you assumes you return to trend growth, but you don't really know what trend growth is, then I worry that even on a medium term basis, you know, once you've looked through short term shocks, then your medium term forecasts aren't going to be incredibly useful. And that just makes the the task of policymakers very, very difficult. I mean, you're almost, to an extent, always flying blind. In a way, you're describing a model of the economy there that sets up the answer via the assumption, and the, the assumption is returning to trend growth. So the critical driving variable behind these kinds of macro models to which this thought process applies is that assumption about trend growth, which might, to the general listener, sound very esoteric and a bit academic. But it, in fact, was absolutely critical in terms of Rishi Sunak's budget yesterday, in terms of the forward-looking assumptions, which particularly interested me. We can talk about all the headline measures, but they've been done to death in the press in, in the ensuing 24, 48 hours. The outlook for trend growth in the UK economy in Sunak's budget yesterday, the assumption in the models, or the, just the assumption in the, in the documents, were pretty bleak, weren't they? Yeah, they were. They were. So, you know, in the long run, in the long run, trend growth is really a productivity story. And, you know, Britain, you know, but the, the entire world has had a bit of a productivity problem in terms of productivity growth since 2008 and the financial crisis. It's been particularly acute in Britain in that, you know, we used to, you know, before 2008, we sort of assumed that productivity would grow at about two and a half percent a year, something like that. Um, that was the trend. Since it's been, but it's been nothing like that for you know, the last 15 years, under 1% annually. And, you know, the difference between 2.5% and below 1% might not be very much in any individual year, 
But over the course of a decade and a half, it becomes a really big undershoot in how your economy is performing. And you look at sort of the medium term forecasts in the budget documents yesterday. And, you know, once you get through this fast growth, as you recover from the pandemic, once that shocks behind you, you know, they think the economy settles into a into a growth pattern of about one and a half percent a year, which, you know, is just weaker than Britain has experienced in the long term for a good four or five decades. Um, and that was with, you know, and that, 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 that's really a productivity story. And even that, even that assumes productivity picks up from where it was just before the pandemic. The Office of Budget Responsibility that do the government's forecasts, they publish an excellent chart. You know, they, they, mark, they mark their homework and they mark it well. You know, they've been doing these forecasts since 2010 and pretty much every year since 2010, their forecast has been productivity growth picks up in two years time. And that, that's where we are again. You know, it's yet to happen. Maybe, maybe this time is different to use those dangerous words, but even that really pessimistic one and a half percent assumes an improvement which may not come through. One of the things that sort of got buried within it, it's attracted a little bit of attention, is that the that it, not just the forecasts for the economy were interesting, but the, the estimates of the current state of the economy, because the OBR, this official body that is responsible for the forecasts, froze its forecasts a good while ago. And there's been some data since it froze its forecasts that suggests the economy already is in a bit of a better state. So when Sunak stands up this time next year, he may also have that little bit more wiggle room that that better state of the economy has given him. But that, on the basis of those longer term assumptions, is about as best he can hope for. Because one of the things that the, the political scientist rather than the economist might suspect is that those gloomy assumptions will in fact turn out to be too pessimistic and that he'll be able to do that this really was part one of maybe a three-part budget going into the next general election and maybe it's only a two-part thing who knows but the the next phase if this if, if yesterday's budget was all about expenditure increases the next big pre-election bit of the budget will be about tax cuts but he will need those growth assumptions to have proven to have been pessimistic to pull that rabbit out of a hat i would assume is that right he's got a bit of wiggle room at the moment. So he set himself his two fiscal targets. On a three-year basis, he wants the current budget to be balanced. That is, day-to-day government spending should be paid for by taxation. Government will only borrow to invest. And he wants debt-to-GDP to be falling within three years. Now, on the current budget, on the numbers that you know the plans yesterday were based on, he's got room for about 1% of GDP of extra spending or tax cuts in 2024-2025. So he could, on these numbers, go into a general election pledging some sort of tax cut. But yeah, the the implicit bet from the Chancellor, I think, is that once the OBR, st- the OBR starts using the, the latest vintage, as they say, the post-revision GDP data that weren't in there, forecasts then the picture will look a bit better he will have even more wiggle room so yeah i mean you know he's doing what chancellors want to do which is you know keeping an eye on a political cycle as well as the business cycle giving himself space for some pre-election and post-election giveaways in 2023 or 2024 there was a marvelous cartoon in the in the times this morning of rishi sunak morphing into gordon brown (laughs) <laughs> and you should take a look at it. Do you agree with the characterization of the budget that it is it, it was a budget that a Labour Chancellor would have loved to have given? 
In many ways, yeah. But I think um, so. I think on the spending side, it was very like Gordon Brown. On the deficit side, though, it was closer to George Osborne. So you know, for all of the talk of sort of largesse in the budget yesterday, we're still looking at a very sort of rapid closing of the government deficit. Uh, the government's deficit. And I think what you get is if you add Gordon Brown's approach to spending to George Osborne's approach to closing the deficit, what you get is very high taxes. And that's what we've got. You know, the tax burden as a percentage of GDP is going to be the highest since the early 1950s. And it was, you know, it was quite an amazing speech in that the Chancellor spoke for 45 minutes announcing sort of big spending programs big tax rises. And then at the end, there was this sort of amazing pivot when he did two minutes on, I believe in low taxes. I don't like raising taxes. My moral mission is to reduce taxes, which was really hard to square with everything he'd said for the 45 minutes beforehand. How do you think that, what do you think that says about the state of British politics today, which is that the Conservative Party, which traditionally, and I know this empirically isn't always true, but likes to portray the narrative that it likes to spin about itself is that it is the party of fiscal conservatism. It is the party of lower taxes, smaller government. Clearly, this budget was about higher taxes and most definitely bigger government. It's it's quite a transformation. And what is it about the British political system that allows them to get away with it with really with, with, with relative ease, this chameleon-like shift, shape-shifting? Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that is a very interesting question. I think, um, yeah, I mean, this was more of a Boris Johnson budget than a Rishi Sunak budget. I think it's, it's, it's fair to say, certainly on the spending side. And because Rishi Sunak does worry about deficits, if Johnson wanted all of that spending, it was going to be paid for with um, taxes. And, you know, lots of conservative backbenchers um, were, I mean, are, are not in the best of moods. You know, they thought that Brexit was going to take Britain to this sort of, you know, Singapore on Thames, global Britain, deregulatory, cutting taxes. And actually what's happening is after Brexit, Britain appears to be moving to a more sort of European social model um, of bigger state, higher taxes. Um, I mean, I think what's interesting for the Conservative Party is, you know, it's traditionally been sort of the party of um, business, the party of low taxes, um, the party of, you know, slightly more prosperous um, working people and the better off members of the working class and you know, cutting their taxes. But, you know, the basis of the Boris Johnson electoral coalition that won in 2019 that he wants to keep together for the early 2020s is fundamentally older people. Um, you know, the, the single biggest determining of, uh, determinant of voting in Britain at the moment is it's not class, it's not education, it's none of those things, it's it's age. And I think you're now seeing this sort of problem for the Conservative Party that, you know, for their ageing demographics that vote for them, um, spending more money on the NHS, spending more money on social care, all of this sort of stuff is very popular. So they've got a big part of their coalition pushing them towards more spending, um, and they've, they've sort of ran out of room at the moment to do their traditional tax cuts. And I think that's going to be sort of the tension throughout the 2020s of, you know, for a lot, you know, it, it makes sense from a sort of electoral point of view to be spending a lot more money on the NHS, to be doing all of this stuff on social care, to be raising corporation tax, to 
and national insurance contributions to do that. But a lot of their sort of more ideological backbenchers and supporters are deeply uncomfortable with this approach. And I think that really will be one of the big tensions that emerges over the next two or three years of this um, British Parliament. Yeah, that demographic thing fascinates me because I happened, by a bizarre set of circumstances, to be watching a football game in a pub the other night with a bunch of university undergraduates. I, I, I sort of um, was triple the average age of everybody else in the pub. And one of the things I noticed in talking to them and listening to them and asking them about their banter was that clearly an insult of the day, the insult du jour, is actually to call somebody a Tory, <laughs> which, I, which I've never heard before. And it, it, it apparently is, is, is the ultimate insult for that, for that particular demographic, or at least for that group of kids in a pub anyway, which speaks to your point more generally, if, if, if it is a general truism. One of the things that was contained in the budget yesterday was, of course, an inflation forecast. And there appeared to be, depending on which document you read and who you're listening to, whether it was four point something or five point something. But that we're clearly in a world where inflation in the UK, at least, if not everywhere else, is, is heading upwards. And the new chief economist of the Bank of England recently worried that inflation was going to hit five percent. Inflation in the United States is at five point something percent. And as the Chancellor said yesterday about inflation in particular and supply shortages generally, these are there are global factors driving the, 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 this, this global rise in inflation, and he was quite right to say that. Um, there are, of course, in the UK, particular Brexit influences on the supply chain and therefore part of the inflation issue. So it is partly homegrown, but it is mostly, I think, most, most of us would accept global. Uh, what do you think of this transitory versus it's going to be a real problem debate? I still lean towards this being transitory, but you know, transitory just because something is transitory doesn't mean it is short-lived. I mean, I could easily imagine sort of this higher than we've had inflation in the past lasting another eighteen to twenty-four months. I mean, I don't think there's been a structural change, but. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I think on one level, what's happened is really quite straightforward. Uh, global demand has recovered from the pandemic much faster than global supply has been able to. And not just that, but global demand has shifted. If you look at um, consumer behavior in Britain, in Europe, in North America, you know, the, 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 typical, the typical advanced economy consumer over the past 18 months has eaten out and gone to the pub a lot less and bought a lot more from Amazon than they did in 2019, seen this huge shift away from consumer spending on services towards consumer spending on goods. So you've got, not only is global demand recovered, but global demand for goods has recovered very fast. Supply hasn't. So you're seeing all of these sorts of um, bottlenecks and um, stoppages. Yeah, that's, that, that's pushing up prices. Now, what's interesting is what's happening in now, for this to be more than transitory, I mean, you've also got the energy price story, but again, that's a sort of temporary imbalance. But for this to be more than transitory, I think you need to see this sort of filter through in sort of second round effects of much higher sustained, higher wage growth, which would obviously and put up costs for firms. We're seeing um, that in the United States a bit, aren't we? We're seeing we're seeing we're seeing some of it in the United States. We're seeing a bit in Britain. We're seeing bits in parts of Europe. I mean, still, um, still in most of the world, I think it is a sector story rather than a general story. I think it's particular. You know, certain sectors are really struggling to hire workers. I because 
um, you know, after the pandemic, their workers left those sectors and either got jobs elsewhere or don't want to return to them. And they're having to put up wages to attract workers. Um, whether that will continue once they have staffed back up or not, I think is the big question. I mean, so you sort of step back. Um, has there been a material change in the bargaining power of workers relative to firms? I mean, there's certainly been a temporary one because labor is less abundant than it was before the pandemic. And that's, you know, partially migration is um, down around the world. Partially, it's that lots of older people seem to have reassessed over the past 18 months and brought forward their retirements. A lot of people in their 60s who were working seem to have dropped out of the labor force um, in the advanced economies over the last year. So you've got fewer older workers, you've got less migration, you've got sort of a geographic mis nicks, uh, geographic mismatch in that, you know, where the demand for jobs are is not necessarily where the workers are. You know, there is less job, less demand for city centre hospitality staff than there was. Um, more demand in suburbs and smaller towns and the workers who were working in these places are still in the city centres, it seems. And you've got this sort of shifting composition of the economy. You've got logistics firms desperate to hire, all of that sort of stuff. But is it a structural change in bargaining power? I think that's the question. I, if, I'm it, not... if it is, presumably, for, for the, the those of us that are concerned about inequality, we would welcome it if it was. I mean, would that be right? No, I think that I think that I think that is that 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 is true. I mean, look, so sort of step back a second, right? I mean, you know, think of the counterfactual in that in twenty 2020 twenty and early twenty twenty one. Central banks are much more hawkish. Finance ministries provide much less support to their economies. We don't get that extraordinary policy response we had in 2020, 2021 to the pandemic and the lockdowns and the shutdowns and all of that. Then the economy looks very different today. You know, growth is much lower. Unemployment is much higher. And we don't have the inflation problem. You know, to, to one extent, I think, you know, the, the shortages problems we're having now and the inflation problem we're having now are almost nice problems to have compared to the alternative. I personally know a lot of people that would welcome a, a, a bit of a bit of wage inflation. Um, it strikes me that where this is, the, the, as with so many things in economic, if not political life, a lot of this is focused on the United States, where inflation, as I mentioned earlier on, already is over 5%. And the central bank there has already admitted that it's le le far less transitory than they originally thought, at least, at least publicly. And we discussed on the last podcast that you and I did, Duncan, that the, this amazing phenomena, which is scarring, post-pandemic scarring. In, one of the big features of the UK budget yesterday was that post-pandemic scarring was reduced from 3% of GDP to 2% of GDP, but it still had a minus sign in front of it. Now, as a result of the policies that accompanied the pandemic, the United States post-pandemic scarring, according to official forecasts by the IMF, is going to have a positive sign in front of it. It's the only economy in the world that I've found that will have it. It doesn't make up for the negative scarring that they think is occurring everywhere else. So the world GDP is still less than it would otherwise be. So this inflation problem, you can understand in a way, depending on your theory of inflation, going back all the way to our first question. But if it is, if it is about d demand versus supply, if you like, and, or, or whatever, you know, whether it's Phillips curve wage style inflation or monetary based inflation, or maybe a bit of both, demand 
being generated in the United States well in excess of what it would otherwise have been thanks to all of the stimulus. You can understand why they've got the inflation problem that they've got. And it strikes me that that, that we're, we're reducing our scarring estimates elsewhere. We, I just mentioned the UK are doing it. And it may, that, that process may have a bit further to go, we think. Uh, you know, that minus two, I think, could easily become minus one quite quickly on the basis of what we know about the UK economy. So it, it's beginning to feel to me, looking at that, that United States thing and the way things are going in the UK, that this inflation problem that we've got, and going back to our question about what is our theory of inflation, if, if you'd ask me, what is my theory of inflation? It looks like we just might have the beginnings of a hypothesis that we've overstimulated our economies a wee bit, certainly in the United States. And that, that in, the, in a way, it's a relatively simple explanation alongside all of those sectoral shifts. I think that shift in consumption thing that you mentioned there is also particular, particularly interesting. And one of the things that's, that, that I conclude from all of that, and I suppose this is Chris Johnsy's general theory of inflation, is that this is going to last a bit longer than we thought as a result of all of the stimulus. It may well do. I mean, I think, I think one way to think about this from a sort of central bank point of view. So, you know, if, you, if you're the Bank of England or the ECB or US Federal Reserve at the moment, and you're looking at this, this inflation, and you're deciding, you know, you're trying to weigh up, is it transitory or not? I mean, you know, essentially, do we as the central bank need to take action to raise interest rates or cut back on QE or whatever it is to, to dampen down demand is sort of the balance of risks on that. That on the, I mean, central banks do know how to deal with higher inflation. It's painful. You know, it involves raising interest rates, um, making money more expensive, slowing down demand, possibly increasing unemployment, slowing wage growth, but they know how to do it. And I think the fact that they, whereas what they don't really know how to deal with is um, sort of very sluggish demand. You, know, you look at the experience of Japan or the Eurozone over the last decade, central banks find themselves with not a huge amount they can do. And I think because they know how to bring down inflation, I think they can let it run longer. They, you know, The balance of risks is, okay, we're not sure if this is transitory or not. Let's give it another six or eight months. And if it's still going on, that's when we act. Um, because we, you know, we know what to do. Whereas the risk is, you you think something is not transitory. You act now by tightening policy, and if you've made a mistake, it's very hard to reverse that mistake. I'm thinking of the ECB in 2011 under Jean Claude Trichet when they hiked interest rates into what turned out to be a temporary period of higher inflation. I think mean, you know if you look back over the last 20 years. So, you know, the good calls and the bad calls in military policy, I think that ECB rate hike in 2011, you know, scores very highly on the um, the, the bad decisions. Um, the policy list. mistake for which nobody has ever been held accountable, of course, accountability in central banking. Mm. Um, one of the things that worries me is that uh, is that in that thesis that you've just posited is that we ascribe too much skill and ability to central bankers to calibrate this inflation problem. Because our belief in the effectiveness of central bank monetary policy is based on our experiences really over the last 40 years since the Paul Volcker era of the early 1980s, in which through interest rates, he crushed the inflation problem that had been created in the United States during the 1970s with a blooming big recession, a double dip recession, actually, um, in the early 1980s. And then the next 40 years of disinflation happened 
which I, I, my own personal view is that central bankers deserve some credit, but not all of it for. I think they got lucky as well. I think the China shock had a huge influence on global inflation during that period. But the sense that central banks could quickly sit on inflation with a tweak to interest rates mm. might prove to be not quite how things turn out, that, they, that we might be surprised by just how uh, difficult a relatively small inflation problem is to cure. But, you know, we, we, as you rightly said, this thing isn't symmetrical. They couldn't create inflation when they wanted to with tweaks to interest rates. Japan still can't do it. I think that there's lots of non-linearities, if you want to use mathematical terms here, about p- pulling bricks with a piece of elastic. Eventually, the brick will hack you in the piece, smack you in the face if you pull on it too hard. And, and, and vice versa. So I, I worry that we won't be able to just say, okay, inflation's a bit higher than we thought it was. We'll whack interest rates up by 50 to 100 basis points. Job done. I don't think, I personally, my own theory of inflation for what it's worth is that that might prove to be a wee bit more problematic because I do think that other things have to happen to allow that sensible calibration. And I think the way in which, going back to our discussions about the UK and other countries' budgets, fiscal policy is going to be a very important actor on this stage. This isn't just about central banks, and it's going to be much more complicated, I think, than, um, than, than perhaps we, we hope it's going to be. So what's Duncan Weldon's general theory of inflation? So, OK, I, I mean, I, I, I think I agree with you on the last the story of the last 30 or 40 years, that yes, central banks got better at their job. Um, they had a better understanding of their tools. They were more credible. They deserve some credit for the lower and more stable inflation of the 2000s and the 1990s compared to the 70s or the 60s or the 1980s. But I agree with you that they don't deserve all of the credit. There was a structural transformation happening in the economy at the same time, whether that was the China shock, the end of the Cold War, sort of this era of hyper-globalization and more international supply chains in the 90s and 2000s, you know, that the pool of workers available to advanced economy firms essentially doubled in two decades after 1990. That's a huge disinflationary shock. And labor in the West, you know, the advanced economies, whatever whatever the preferred term is nowadays, was in a very different place. You had more flexible labor markets, more liberal labor markets, much weaker trade unions, much lower trade union coverage. And I think, you know, structurally more flexible labor markets and lower labor bargaining power, plus globalization, that's an awful lot of your story of deflation over the last 20, 30 years. Um, You know, I think central banks deserve some credit, but changes in the real economy matter as well. And that's what gives me reasonable i'm never i'm never very confident on a forecast but gives me reasonable confidence that this in 12 months in 24 months time i'll say i'll give myself an opt-out 24 months time that inflation will be lower because i don't think that structural transformation in the economy has been reversed by the pandemic you know we're still going to have global supply chains maybe slightly less so but still very global compared to the 1970s i don't think we're going to see a sudden revival in trade union power anywhere in um, the advanced economies. So I think even if central bankers do muck it up a bit, you know, I think that structural transformation is still there. You know, I, you know, people keep talking about the 1970s. You know, I mean, I don't think we're going to get anything like the 1970s. You know, even if inflation keeps rising in the US from above 5% to 6 or 7 or 8%, you know, they're still the kind of numbers that policymakers would have killed for in the late 1970s. Absolutely. I can remember inflation 
being about 25% in the UK, I'm that old. And I, I can also remember associated with that paying a mortgage that um, uh, later on um, in, in the 1980s, I think, um, that was a, a significant portion of my monthly income as a result. So I don't, I agree, we're not going back to that. Duncan, as always, that's been a fabulous conversation. At least I enjoyed it thoroughly. A big thank you for making the time to come on the other hand today. And hopefully we'll get you on again sometime soon. All the best with your own Subtact publication. Just finally, are, are the sales of the book going well? Yes, they are. I mean, the thing about publishing is nobody ever tells you what's good. Um, so you never quite know what the benchmark um, is. But I'm, um, yeah, we're happy. It's now on its third print run. Great. Oh, wow. That's, that, that must be a sign of success. So that's where I'll conclude. Um, another plug for Duncan's book and another big thank you for coming on to the other hand. Thanks a lot, Duncan. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www cjpeconomics.substack.com You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.